Let me go ahead and read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 16 for us. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing in our book of uh, Hebrew series, and I'm sure you felt it by now, uh, just how challenging this book can be sometimes, um, because it repeatedly takes us high above ground to give us this bird's-eye view of the whole Bible, how the Old Testament and the New Testament harmonize into this one giant symphony. And, and that's really the only way to truly fully understand scriptures as one coherent piece and the finished picture ultimately pointing us to Jesus, who is the Christ. He is the glue that holds it all uh, together and makes sense of it all. Now, uh, before we dive into our very important passage today, I want to give you a quick review of what we've been learning from the author of Hebrews, because it, it is this gigantic bridge between the Old Testament and the New, and just as you would look at the Golden Gate Bridge, and you'll have to look at it various times from various angles to get the full picture. I'm going to keep giving you these reviews so that you can get the full picture of what we've been talking about in the past 10 chapters. So the author, again, uh, is writing to Jewish Christians who are living before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, where the Jews were continuing with their lawful temple worship according to the laws of Moses. But the author here brings that up and uses that to begin to warn the Jewish Christians who are now going back to that temple for worship with Jews who are not Christians. And by doing so, he points out how some have drifted away from Christ, some have drifted away permanently, some have become apostates. And this is a big part of why this whole letter was written, to uh, teach the Jewish Christians that Christ is actually the better and truer form of all those old covenant forms of worship, which were, in his words, merely shadows of the real thing. Shadows of the real thing. Christ is the real thing that the old covenant forms of worship were pointing to. And now that he's here, now that Christ, the true substance, is here, it's not right to hold on to these things in the past that merely pointed to him. There's something very deeply dysfunctional about that. Uh, it's like, I, I like what Pastor Kevin shared a couple of weeks ago. It's as if they're choosing to continue in this long-distance relationship when you're married and now you're supposed to be living together as husband and wife. That problem, if that were to actually happen in a relationship... That's not a minimal thing. That's a dysfunctional relationship. It's missing the whole point 
of a relationship. And that's sort of the author's concern here with the Jewish Christians. The true substance is here. Don't return to the shadows. So we've been hearing from the author repeatedly how the covenant that Christ mediates is better, Hebrews 8, 6. Uh, and the old is now ready to give way to the new that, that uh, has come. The old is now obsolete, Hebrews 8, 13. And he gives us all the specifics around that. The old tent and the temple made by human hands now give way to the truer and more perfect tent, which is Christ himself, Hebrews 9, 11. And the old Levitical priests who live and died and live and died now give way to the eternal priesthood of Christ who can never die, who will eternally represent us before the throne of God permanently, Hebrews 7, 24. And, and the old animal sacrifices and their blood, which could never take away sins, now give way to the once and for all sacrifice for sins, meaning it is not to be repeated, imitated. Christ paid it all. He finished it all. No more shedding of blood, therefore, is necessary. Hebrews 10, 11 to 12. And we also looked at how this, therefore, leads us into these different covenant signs under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Before Christ, the shedding of blood was required, whether that's circumcision or animal sacrifices. But after Christ, and he shed his blood once and for all, shedding of blood is no longer necessary, which is now the reason why we have baptism as a sign of our circumcision in Christ, which Paul says in Colossians 2, and the Lord's Supper as our Passover meal, since Christ has become our Passover lamb, as it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So all of this, again, points us to our faith in Jesus Christ as the only means, the only means by which we draw near to God and brings us to the very literal presence of God forever. So the author has been saying again and again and again, look to Jesus because he is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. So there's the bridge once again. And I hope that every time you hear about it, it'll give you a different angle on it, different vantage point, and help you appreciate how these, these are the nuts and bolts that really bind the two testaments together. And, and perhaps it will take some of you more time to grasp that, but as you begin to understand this more and more, uh, you really require the key to understanding the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's worth your effort. And this is also why we're going through Hebrews before we hit our eventual series in the book of Revelation sometime next year. Um, now, today, uh, we come to another very important part of the history of Israel and the people of Hebrews, um, and that is the person of Abraham. And when it comes to Abraham, uh, nothing is more important than understanding his faith, the faith of Abraham. He's the father of our faith. Um, and so we're going to look at his faith in, in two ways. Abraham's faith as it was manifested in how he lived, and Abraham's faith as it was manifested in how he died. Okay. Abraham's faith in the way he lived, and Abraham's faith in the way he died. These two points. All right, so let's take a look at first the faith of Abraham in the way that he lived. All right, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to, to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, this little phrase here that sounds really casual, the way he you know, put it, was called to go out, okay, um, is really not at all casual. Okay? God was not like, hey, you want to come out? Abraham's like, okay, let's go. It wasn't like that at all. 
um, let me go back to Genesis for a moment to show you why that is actually a very big deal there. Uh, it says in Genesis 12, Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now when it says go from your country and your kindred, that's referring to Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where Abram was originally from. And historians have discovered uh, Ur was a city along the, the Euphrates River, which is modern-day southern Iraq. And it was during this time a very booming city, a uh, merchant city with business and trade. And it was known to be the city where they worshipped the moon god. And historians have discovered this three-layered ziggurat that was used. Um, and excavations have shown that Human sacrifices were made there. This is Abram's hometown. Abram is here being intentionally identified as a citizen of Ur of the Chaldeans, citizen of this country, of his kindred. There's no mistake about the fact that he was a part of this idol-worshiping culture. And that's so significant. Because it tells us why the Bible says Abram had to be brought out or called out of his country. Why? He wasn't a believer. Abram was not a believer. He wasn't even a seeker. He was a foreigner lost in idol worship. And that's why the Bible, more than several occasions, identifies God as the Lord who called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. And we see that in Genesis 15. That's how he's identified. And also in Nehemiah 9.7. God identifies himself as the one who graciously called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans because that is a significant, significant event. And all of this points us to something very important about the story of Abraham, and that is apart from the calling of God, Abram would never have become Abraham. Abram would never have become Abraham apart from the calling of God. The calling of Abraham by God was an act of sovereign grace out of God's sheer mercy, his sovereign mercy alone. Abram did nothing to deserve this call. Nothing. It was all by the grace of God and to which Abram responded with faith. So the order is not, Abram had faith and that procured or produced the grace of God and his calling, but God's gracious calling is what produced Abram's faith in him. It's not Abraham's faith that initiated this relationship with God, but God's gracious calling that initiated this relationship with Abraham. And if that sounds familiar, it's because that is the gospel, as described to us in Ephesians 2, for example, verses 8 to 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's the same structure of grace preceding faith. Then there's this even more explicit connection between Abraham's faith and the Christian faith in Romans 4.16, where it says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham is the father of us all. And Paul's talking to Christians here. Abraham is your father. And what is it that makes this so? Our faith. Our faith in what? The gracious promise of God 
And because no one can keep the whole law, which is what Romans, the context of Romans is, no one can keep the whole law. Therefore, we must be saved by faith. If anyone's going to be saved, they must be saved by faith. And that faith is the one that Abraham had, the one that responded to God's gracious calling that he didn't deserve. So this goes back to what we were talking about last week, about how all the Bible is talking about are Christians, Christians in the Old Testament who looked forward to the Messiah, Christians in the New Testament who look back on the Messiah who's come. It's all about this faith in the Messiah. It's all a Christian faith, a faith that is in Christ and His grace. And just as God first loved us and chose us while we were yet sinners, Abraham was called while he was still among the Ur of the Chaldeans. You realize how amazing that is. The father of Israel, the father of Israel was himself not Israel. He was grafted into Israel, just like the rest of us. That's the grace of God. It initiates everything. The grace of God initiates everything, even the salvation of Abraham. Nothing moves apart from his grace and apart from his call. Now, one thing we have to to take note of as well is just how God's grace specifically was delivered to Abraham, how his call came to Abraham. It wasn't just this warm, fuzzy feeling that Abraham felt in his heart. This must be God, therefore I'm going to respond. How? Here's the how. The word promise appears not once, not twice, but five times in our passage today. Abraham received the grace of God by hearing the promises of God, the Word of God. And I think it's really interesting how uh, Sarah is mentioned here in verse 11 uh, as sort of a highlight to all of this, a way to exemplify this in a way. So take a look at verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. I think it's really refreshing that the author of Hebrews is using Sarah's example here to teach us, I think, one of the most important things about faith, the Christian faith. First, it says here that Sarah received power. Okay? And the question is how? The question is always, how do, we, how do Christians receive power? How do we receive the power to trust and obey God? Does Sarah here simply just try hard? Does she simply look deep into her feelings? Does she try to reach some level of psychological certainty? Is that what the author praises Sarah about her faith? No, it says here, she considered him faithful who had promised. She considered him. Not herself, not her performance, not her feelings, not even her faith. She did not consider her faith. Her faith was in considering Him who is faithful. We have to understand this about the Christian faith. The Christian faith is not about the Christian. It's about Christ. That's the key to Christian faith. The Christian faith is not about how well are you doing, Christian. It's how good is Christ to you. It's about considering more and more of him and less and less of me. That's the Christian faith. Sarah is here 
exemplifying that for us, who considered not herself, not her old age, not her feelings, her bodily conditions, but God and His promises alone. Sarah's faith is sitting firmly on God and His Word. And where do we get these promises? From God's Word, from Christ and His Gospel. I want to invite you to think about this. When two people get married and exchange their marriage vows, what is going on in that, in that moment? You know, when they say things like, till death do us apart, um, how do they know that for certain? How do they know that for certain? And the answer is they don't. Because it's not knowledge that you're hearing there. It's, it's a promise. And with promise, it's not something that you go in with absolute certainty about. It's something you enter in with a conviction. And that's why in in verse 1 in chapter 11, it says, faith is what? The conviction of things not seen, the assurance of things hoped for. It's not a knowledge to say, I will love you till the day I die. That's a conviction about a promise. And yet it's a conviction that is that is foundationally sound because it's not it's not conviction about some vague idealistic notion. It's not conviction about something that Disney dreamed up for us in in the cartoons. This conviction comes from a promise. I take you to be my wife. I take you to be my husband. And with it, here's the thing, with it comes all kinds of uncertainties, all kinds of risks. And therefore, the question is less, less of, do you know the promise to be true, but more of, are you convicted Are you convicted by the promise? And do you consider the one standing before you to be faithful? Do you consider him or her faithful? And this is not at all a coincidence that this happens to be so reflective of our relationship with God. Because God himself said the whole point of marriage is to reflect his covenantal relationship with us. And even though our earthly marriage may be imperfect, and by the way, all earthly marriages are imperfect, This marital relationship with God is perfect because our spouse, our spiritual husband, Christ is perfectly faithful to keep his promises. He will hold us fast. He will hold us fast. Sarah had this conviction. Sarah had this faith, and therefore she held on to this promise, and that's where she received power, power to follow God and love him. And so did Abraham. You see, one thing about Abraham's faith that the author highlights here is found in verse 8, where it says, Abraham went out not knowing, not knowing where he was going. It doesn't mean, and please don't take this to justify some kind of blind, irrational faith. It doesn't mean he knew nothing. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew it was God calling him, and God had promised him to be faithful but he didn't know the rest. He didn't have all the details. He didn't know exactly where God was taking him, what would happen to him along the way. He had to take a risk. Risk. And his faith was exercised in this way. Remember, we also talked about the importance of not simply carrying your faith, which is great, but you got to practice it. What does that look like? It looks like this. It looks like taking a risk. I want to ask you this question. Um, when was the last time that you or your family took a risk obeying God? 
When was the last time you consciously chose to do something for God knowing that there would be risks involved? This is something we have to understand and embrace, that the Christian faith lived out looks a lot like taking a bunch of risks. What happens when you finally choose to bring up your faith with a friend? You risk offending them. You risk losing that friend. What happens when you choose to emphatically keep the Sabbath day holy? That one out of the seven days you commit to worshiping the Lord and resting in Him, fellowshipping with others, you risk leaving things unfinished. And that, in turn, risks perhaps your job security. When you choose to be the first to, to say, I'm sorry, to be confessional, you risk emotional vulnerability and perhaps not being reciprocated, being wounded yourself. What I've just laid out for you are three examples where you simply cannot, it's impossible to obey God without taking a risk whether that risk is relational, vocational, or emotional. There is no obedience in these areas without risk-taking. And therefore, it's, it's faith that leads us to obedience. It's faith that empowers us to obey. There's no such thing as risk-free Christianity. There is no such thing as risk-free Christianity. And I think Abraham, more than anyone, was, was someone who exemplified that and modeled that for us. His eyes were not focused on the risks. His eyes were fixed on the promises of God. And this is not only revealed in the way that he lived out his faith, but in fact, I think more so in the way he finished his life. He died by faith. The way he approached death by faith. And since death is something we all face, and you do know that, right? As you are dying as we speak, You do know that, just in case you didn't know that. (laughs) This is important to us. Not only how we live, but really the flip side of this, how are we dying? In how are we living, we ask the the, the same question, but in a different way. How are we dying? In in asking how, how are we living well, we're also asking how are we dying well? So here, let me move on to the second point now. Abraham's faith in the way that he died. Okay, Take a look at verse 13. And this verse is key. These, and that's referring to Abraham and all his offspring, all died in faith. Died in faith. If if you were to see the headstones of these these saints, chances are what they'll say is, so-and-so, Isaac, son of Abraham, died in faith. That's the summary we get of their lives. They died in faith. And here's what that means. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. From afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I really think that the reason why we as Christians today fail to take any kind of risk for God is is found right here. Why do we fail to live in the power that He gives us to live by faith? It's because we think oftentimes we're meant to receive all the things promised in heaven here on earth. The life without suffering, the life without pain, 
the life without brokenness, the life without decay. We're supposed to have all of that now. So we run from all the risks. We're very much like the Jewish Christians who, rather than holding on to Christ by faith, wanted to return to something more tangible, like temple worship. We want something more tangible in the here and now, don't we? And we want to be able to say, ah, this is what my faith is blessing me with, bringing, to, bringing into my life as a return for the investment I've made. These things I get to enjoy now. Right? We're itching to, to say that. And the author here is reminding us that whatever that is, is not faith. It's not living by faith. It's not dying by faith. Faith is not this expectation that you receive all of God's promises now. Instead, as it says here, faith is seeing and greeting those promises from afar. From afar. It's not even near you. It's far. And that's because the eternal promises cannot be fully realized in a world that is not meant to be eternal. In a world where things break down and and death is all around us, that's not where we experience the fullness of God's promises of life eternal, of, of eternal blessedness with Him. And that makes our relationship to, to our life here on earth, what? Strangers and exiles. Strangers and exiles. Homeless. Without country. Without true belonging. Without stability. That's you, Christians. That's me. In verse 9, it says this as well. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. He got it. He entered the land that God was going to show him, but even there, he lived as if it was a foreign land, and he therefore lived in tents, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. We might have to move again, guys. This is not our eternal home. Even in the land of promise, they lived in it as if it was a foreign land. Why? Verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. To a city that will not fade away and whose builder is not people, not human architects, but God. This reiterates the same contrast the author has been making between the temple made by human hands and the more perfect temple of God, which is Christ, the true curtain torn in two for us, bringing us into the presence of God. Here, there's a city built by human hands called Promised Land, called Canaan, called Israel, called Jerusalem. And then there's another city not built by human hands called the city of God. Abraham longed for the latter, the city of God. So it says here, he lived here as though he was living in a foreign land, even when he was in the promised land. 
at least the earthly version of it. He was longing for the heavenly one. And the very challenging application here that we have to draw from this, if your hope is that God's promises to you will all come true in the here and now or somewhere here on earth, whatever life that that kind of faith leads you to live, it's not the Christian faith and it is not the Christian life. That wasn't the point of faith or life for Abraham, nor Isaac, nor Jacob. They longed for a country not found anywhere here on earth. They were looking forward, forward to the promised land that's, that's far away, farther away than things immediately in front of us. I'm sort of nearsighted, so... Um, so if I, if I take my glasses off, I can see pretty clearly like what's immediately in front of me, but things that are farther away become blurry. Um, but with my glasses on, things that are far away are just as clear as the things that are immediately in front of me. Christian faith, in a way, really is putting on eyeglasses that help you see not only what's immediately in front of you, but the promised land, the coming country that's far away, it's seeing that and saying, oh, that's my home. That's Christian faith. Christian faith is not, here's my life. Here's how God's going to help me get through this day to, to tomorrow and my career path and, and step three and four and five. Christian faith is seeing the eternal home, the eternal country, farther, much farther ahead. That's Christian faith. Verses 14 to 16 makes this even clearer. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And by the way, that longing for home, that's God-given. Whether you're a believer or not, we all long for a home, a home that's stable and secure and eternal and permanent and is welcoming. We all have that longing. We are all seeking a homeland. But verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. Right? All, all they have to do, the Jewish Christians at this point, is just pack their bags and move back to Jerusalem or Canaan. But, verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country. What is that? United States of America? What is this better country? A heavenly one. A heavenly one. Your home, my home, Abraham's home, Israel's true home, the Christian home is not found on earth. You will never find this home on earth. It's not an earthly Canaan. It's a heavenly one. It's not an earthly Israel, it's a heavenly one. It's not an earthly Jerusalem, but a heavenly one. It's a city not prepared by us, shaped by us, built by us, but prepared for us by God, as it says in verse 16. A city prepared by God himself. And the author of Hebrews will build, build this point up to later in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 14, where, where he says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So think about what that means when it, 
when it says that the fathers of our faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all lived as exiles on the earth, did not find any particular homeland here on earth, what does that mean for us who carry this faith, who live by the same faith? We are sojourners here. We are exiles on the earth. And, and that brings a tremendous balance to the way we live our lives here. And let me just, since we're in the, midst, in the thick of this, let me just use this as an illustration. It would, it would impact even the way that you, you look at modern-day elections. If, as a Christian, your faith is in the home that is to come, when you are grieving an outcome, you will never grieve without hope. Because this is not it. If you are celebrating an outcome, you will not celebrate without lament. Because again, this is not the perfect home. Those who are celebrating should balance that with lament. Those who are grieving should balance that with hope. Why? Neither of us should be considering anything earthly to be our homeland. We need that perspective as Christians. And I think this was in a way... This is just my personal opinion. This is God preparing the Jewish Christians who are first receiving this letter, preparing them to face the, if not the greatest, one of the greatest physical loss of their lives, and that is the physical destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I can only imagine the, the pastor of that local Jewish church bringing this passage up, reminding them, our hope is not gone because the physical temple is gone. Just because the physical temple has been wiped off the face of the earth doesn't mean that our homeland is gone. We long for a heavenly country that is still to come. And we should see it and greet it from afar. And, and nothing that we lose will be quite as proportionate to their loss of their temple, to be honest with you what it means to their national identity, their spiritual identity. And yet, our hope is not found here on earth. I hope this encourages you in a way as you face this life that is bound to decay, it's bound to rust, it's bound to die. But yet you are still bound for the promised land. You're still bound for your homeland with God, the dwelling place of God. Jesus told us, in this world, we will have tribulation. In this world, we will have to endure suffering. But the promise of God that fuels our faith, the faith that we can then sit on, the promise that we can place our faith in, is not take heart because you'll have a lot of success. Take heart because you're going to end up achieving your career goals. Take heart because you'll get to elect your, your favorite political candidate. Take heart because you will be healed of all your diseases in the here and now. No, the promise is not that. The promise is, I, Christ, have overcome the world. And this Savior has prepared for us a city not found on earth the city that is permanent, the city that is indestructible, the city that is forever. Here's a promise in full, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself would be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Not a city here on earth that we prepared and God then descends upon. He brings his city down from heaven. And that's the new heavens and the new earth. That is the city of God. That's true Canaan. That's true promised land. And Abraham saw it and greeted it from afar. Whatever you do, whatever, whatever you think will take place in the future here on earth, sociopolitically, economically, apocalyptically, please do not associate anything that can be destroyed, anything that can be undone, anything that can be demolished, anything that can be elected and then unelected with this city of God. It's not yet here. Revelation 21 is not about inhabiting an earthly city until Jesus comes down and inhabit it with us. It's about God bringing down a city, a new city out of heaven. That's our home. And we long for it, we look forward to it by faith. If you have this faith, and if you're standing on this side of death, seeing that home and, and greeting it from afar, you will, like Abraham, reach that homeland. You're bound to that homeland. And in the meantime, while we're here, we live by faith. We take risks by faith. We suffer loss by faith. We say yes to things and we say no to things by faith. We move to places by faith. We don't move to places by faith we enter into relationships by faith. We exit out of relationships by faith. And as dislocating as that may feel, these risks, you will never be dislocated from your eternal home. So live by faith. A faith that takes risks for the kingdom of God. Consider God's promises. And as you do so, and by the way, by consider, I don't just mean on Sundays, in your daily personal time with God, in memorizing the Word of God, consider God's promises, and as you do so, receive the power to live by faith and receive the power to die by faith as well. Let's pray. Father God, we, we ask you now to uh, remind us of that gracious calling you've given to Abraham and that same calling you have given to us through the gospel. And let it fuel our faith once again, uh, just knowing how gracious you are to us, how loving you are to us. Help us to consider that and respond to you by drawing near to you in faith. Help us not to put our faith in our certainty. Help us not to put our faith in how we feel. Help us not to put our faith in our past experiences or present experiences or future experiences, but in God, who he is 
and His promises. And as we do so, Lord, would you point our attention more and more to that, to that homeland that's farther away, uh, heal our nearsightedness, and help us to see with spiritual eyes. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.